Grab your Bible today, friends, and turn to John chapter 5, verse 1. Phone Bibles count, paper Bibles count, whatever you got, let's let her go. John 5, 1. And while you're finding that, here's the stream of consciousness for me from this week. I was thinking about people this week, like human beings, and I was thinking about how interesting we are. That's a compliment, not an insult. Uh, I was thinking about how on the one hand, human beings are quite complex creatures. You know what I'm saying? If you're married to someone, you'll agree that that's a true statement. We're complex creatures. You think about how we're put together biologically, for instance, like how our bodies operate and work and function. Pretty complex. Well over my head. That doesn't take a lot, though, because I'm short. That's why you were laughing, right? Uh, psychologically, the way our minds work, that's, there's a whole lot there. How they think and trigger and map things and, and operate, way over my head, pretty complex. Relationally, human beings can be pretty complex. And I say this a bit tongue-in-cheek, but as an example, I don't think I will ever fully understand women. <laughs> brothers, yes, I need an amen from the brothers in the house. Anyway, ladies, love you, need you, value you, cherish you. You're the best. I'm sure us guys are peachy as well to get along with all the time, right? Uh, okay, this sermon's over. We'll have now the final closing hymn. We're complex creatures, okay? But at the same time, human beings can be pretty simple creatures. You know what I'm saying? We live in a planet in which there's getting close to 8 billion human beings in, which is kind of a large number, boggles my mind. And we're from all kinds of different continents and countries and cultures and circumstances. And yet there comes a point when you realize, you know what, we all kind of have the same basic needs and instincts and, and some of the same basic pursuits in life. They're kind of universal. They're kind of uh, just broad all across the board. And in our romp through God's word today, we're going to see two of those universal yet profound needs and pursuits and desires in human beings. You want to know what they are? Okay. I don't know what I was going to do if you said no. Probably tell you anyway. One of them is healing. Help me out. Say healing this morning. Healing being, of course, hey, there's something wrong, broken, messy in my life, and I would love it to be fixed soon, please. That's healing. The other one we're going to see today is hope. Help me out again. Say hope. Hope is that sense of expectation. It's that confidence that tomorrow is going to be a better and brighter day. Whether today is a good day or a bad day, something good is coming down the pipe. And that confidence comes from something or someone being present in our lives. That's, that's hope. And today in John 1, 5, verses 1 through 18, we're going to see both that desire for healing and hope on display. More importantly, we're going to see where we can truly find those things. It's not a whole lot of good just to know what your need is. It's better to know where you can find the resolution to that need. So with that being said, let's talk about healing. Sound agreeable? Good. Most of you are in on that. That sounds fine. That's a quorum. That works. We're going to pick our way through the first nine verses of John 5 as we talk about healing. So it starts out by saying this. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So here he is. He's traveled all around in our different times through the first four chapters of this book. 
He's going back to Jerusalem now. This is the center of the Jewish faith and commerce and culture. He's going right back there. It says, now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate. Can we just stop on the sheep gate for a second? Jerusalem was like any other city in ancient days. It was built with a wall around it for fortification and for defense, right? And at different points in the wall, there would be gates because you'd have to kind of come in and out, right? Sort of important. And some of their gates were kind of weirdly named. There's the sheep gate, like we see here. They also had one called the fish gate. They also had one, my personal favorite, called the dung gate. So whoever's naming these gates, I don't know if they found their true calling in life. They're like stream of consciousness. Whatever the first thing I see is, I'll name this gate after, right? You get it. Okay. Something actually relevant about the sheep gate, though, it was located in the northeast corner of Jerusalem. Something else that was located in the northeast corner of Jerusalem was the temple. Can we just stow that away for a moment, the temple? Yes, we're stowing it away from memory. We'll come right back to that. Now, by the sheep gate, there was a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda. That word Bethesda means house of pity, house of mercy. So that gives you an idea of what's going on in there. And this pool had five roofed colonnades. It was this structure built on top of these columns with a roof on it that would have provided protection from the hot sun for the people inside. In these colonnades lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Got to stop right there for a second because when I was reading this this week, something in here just about flattened me, to be honest, just about knocked me flat. Remember what we said in this northeast corner of Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, by the pool, what else is there? The temple. The temple was there. And the temple in this day when this was written was the house of God. It was where God's presence came to dwell on the earth in a special way. It was sort of the connecting point between heaven and earth. God would reveal himself in special ways at the temple. God's people would have special experiences at the temple. So you would think, I would think, then that going forth from the temple in which there's been all this activity of God and God's people get together and we're feeling good and we met with the Lord today and we're, we're excited, we're inspired. You would think that that would then take to the streets and forth from the temple would flow things of God that God brings forth like love and peace and compassion and mercy and, and goodness and things like that, right? And yet, right next door to the temple lay this multitude of people who are down and out and struggling and in desperate need. And it doesn't say expressly here, but you'll notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say anything. It doesn't make one mention of anybody coming from God's house to lift a finger to do anything for these guys. And the reason that that's relevant for you and I, I'll ask it. Where is the temple now? Not Bingo. It's in us. See, we don't go to a certain building or a certain place or a certain location for worship. Now, I mean, it's great that you're here, but God's presence as Christians lives in us. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians 6, you and I as believers are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Let it not be said of us that there are people right outside the temple 
who are struggling, who need help, and I, we, do nothing to help them. Who is there in your life, right outside your walls, right in front of you, maybe every single day, who needs help, and what can you do about it? That is a reminder for us in there. To be honest, that isn't even the main point of this text in John 5, but it's just there, and I say, it just about flattened me, so I wanted to share that with you. Because I think the Lord wanted us to hear that today. Anyway, as we carry on, you'll notice the next bit on the bottom third half-ish of the screen here. You'll notice that this bit at the bottom is in brackets and italics for dramatic effect, right? And if you're following along in your Bible or your phone or whatever, I would hazard a guess to say that you actually don't have that section in brackets in your Bible. My Bible, for instance, some of you might have it, most of you won't. But my Bible, for instance, has verse 3, and then it skips to verse 5. And I think I was about 20-something years old and had been in church for 20-some years before I noticed that there is no John 5, 4 in my Bible. And we'll go short on the explanation for this today because there's a longer one of these in John 8. We'll talk about it more then. But this section of Scripture right here, by the way, my Bible has a note in the bottom. It says, some manuscripts insert, wholly or in part, that section there, which we'll read in a second. But the reason that it's not in your Bible or it's a note at the bottom of your Bible or, and or we've got it in the brackets up here is because the earliest written recorded manuscripts of the Gospel of John did not contain that bit of text. It's been there for a long time, but the earliest verified writings of this Gospel didn't contain that. Now, that doesn't mean that there's a mistake in your Bible or it doesn't mean that this is all wrong or whatever. It just means that this, something like this in the brackets, we can't take that with quite, quite the same sort of weight that we would take the whole rest of the scriptures, which can be kind of better verified because this was added in sometime later. But for fun, we'll read it anyway. The people were laying in there waiting for the movement of the water for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Now what's interesting about that is that many scholars who have researched this, they believe you know, whenever this was added in to the scriptures later, doesn't matter. They believe that this whole thing about the, the water being stirred up and the angel and the healing and all this, they believe that was largely superstitious. They say, this isn't something that God ordained and set up. You could look through the whole council of the scriptures and nowhere in it does God say, oh, by the way, if you want to be healed from whatever disease you have, just go to Jerusalem by the sheep gate and go to this pool uh, under the colonnade and when the angel stirs up the water, you get in and you'll be healed. God never said that. But the people believed it. Superstition. Whether anyone was actually ever healed there or not kind of doesn't really matter because there's a buy-in here. People really, truly, honestly believe it. And before you would sit here and think, well, that's really dumb of them, how ancient and archaic, I'm much smarter in my day and age, I would never be superstitious like that. Oh, yes, you would. Yes, you would. We're still as superstitious as ever, honestly. And I, I think on the next slide, there should be a picture I'm wondering if this will resonate with anybody. Somebody's like, I had one, but I don't want to put my hand up and admit it. That's the Q-Ray bracelet. That came out, I don't know, 20-some years ago maybe. 
And uh, it was marketed as a wellness bracelet. It's a hunk of metal is what it is. But they really marketed it. This is a wellness product. I'm insulting somebody, I think. This is kind of funny. Anyway, but people would swear by it. The testimonials were pages and pages long. I put on the Q-Ray bracelet. My chronic pain disappeared. My migraines went away. My golf swing improved dramatically. People would swear by this. Here's the only problem. I'm not saying it didn't help anybody. I'm just saying that a lot of the claims that were made about this, completely unsubstantiated. There was kind of, no offense, a lot of quackery involved with this. But do you know what? They sold millions of these. Millions of these. Somebody got very rich off that hunk of metal right there. We buy into things like that all the time. It doesn't really matter if it works. As long as you say it works and I believe that it works, I'm going to buy it. That'll just cut us down a peg or two. You're welcome. Anyway, so the superstition's going on. And it says in verse 5, there was a man there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Just a long, long time. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? I would assume that's slightly rhetorical at least. Hey, you're struggling. Do you want to be healed? Nah, I'm good. Thanks. No thanks. Like, yeah, I want to be healed, obviously. But look at, look at how this guy approaches this. He's right in on the superstition. He says, the sick man answered him, sir... I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going in, another steps down before me. He's right bought in, right? And notice how Jesus responds to him. He doesn't say, hey, no problem, brother. I'll wait here. And when the water gets stirred up, I'll lower you into the pool myself. No problem. Bada bing, bada boom. No, Jesus goes a different direction altogether. He says, get up, take up your bed, and walk. Completely different. And look what happens. At once, when? At once, thank you, the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. You can't miss the obvious of what's happening there. Jesus healed that man. And he healed that man just by the word spoken to him, by the power of his word. Jesus has authority to heal. We, we believe, friends, we believe that that really happened. We believe that Jesus did this. And no, it doesn't come along and say, well, how did he do it? Show me the science. Did he strengthen his ankles and put this joint back together with this? No, it doesn't say that. Maybe we can ask him someday. But Jesus has the authority and the ability to heal as he healed that man right there. This isn't just some story to make us happy. The how he did it is irrelevant. It's the who that's everything. Who did this? Jesus did this. What I want to do, I want to share with you three things this morning about healing. Just three. You can handle three, right? We're doing them anyway. Three things about healing. Okay, here's what I was going to say. The Lord will not give you more than you can bear, but I never promised that I wouldn't give you more than you can bear. Okay, we'll edit that part out. That's fine. Three things about healing. Because this is a touchy subject, right? There's a lot of people over here that say, healing, nah, no, no. You Christians, yeah, there are you weak-minded Christians having to believe in healing. Sure, great, good for you, but I'm a science person. I, I just look at the facts. I'm a realist. The, actually, a lot of Christians, or some Christians believe that. They say, no, there's no healing. 
Then there's on the other side of the coin, there are people who have sort of abused this gift of healing. And I'm not saying that everyone who's come along as a healer or claiming to be a healer was wrong or anything, but we've kind of all seen the horror stories, right? We've seen the TV evangelists and they whack you on the forehead and they're wearing an earpiece and they're flying around in a jet. Like it can kind of go kind of far that way. Then you've got also the added human element to it as well. Like, hey, I need to be healed and I've been praying and I've been asking, but I haven't received it. But this person over here, they did receive it. Why them? Why not me? There's a lot of touchiness about the subject of healing. So three things to kind of clear the waters a little bit. Number one simply is this. Healing is about more than physical fixing. It does include that for sure, but there's kind of a bigger principle at play here. Healing is all about wholeness. Somebody say wholeness. Being made whole. There's something wrong that's made right. There's something lacking. It's filled up. There's something incomplete. It's made complete. That is what healing is all about. And yes, it can involve the physical. That's where our minds go. Oh, my leg was broken and now it's not broken anymore. That was cool. But it can involve all kinds of other areas. What about mental and emotional healing? That's a thing. Like our minds sometimes aren't kind of firing quite right and, and we need to be restored and, and regenerated and, and made new and all that. What about something like financial? Sometimes there's a hole in the bucket somewhere, right? There's a leak that you can't seem to identify and I need something to change. I need something to, to happen to make me whole, to fix this problem. Well, that's kind of an element of healing, right? What about relational? Sometimes there's conflict or broken trust or a strain relationally and something needs to be done there to kind of improve that, to fix that, to heal that. That's, uh, that's an aspect of healing. What about something like spiritually? I will tell you something. You may have a lot of needs in this life. You might be sitting here today with all kinds of needs, just like an arm's length long. Here's all the things I need in my life. But no need is deeper for human beings than the need for spiritual healing and wholeness. There is no greater need than that. Do you want to know why that is? It's because we're spiritual beings. You and I are not just physical. I love to physically see you here sitting here. You look great, by the way. We're not just carnal beings. We're not just, I think, therefore I am. We are spiritual beings. We were made by God and for God to be in a relationship with God. We were made in the image of God. We were made to be close to God, to worship God. That is all spiritual stuff. And all of the other areas of life, the physical, the relational, the financial, the whatever, all of those things are supposed to work to serve and fulfill that biggest thing, that biggest need, that biggest need to be connected spiritually to God. All of life is spiritual. We've talked about that before. And the problem is, though we are spiritual beings, we are all spiritually broken in and of ourselves. We were made to be like this with God, close, relationship, proximity. But we have all sinned, right? We have all separated ourselves from God, driven a wedge in between that possible relationship there. And that's tragic. And what I want to tell you is that until some sort of spiritual healing happens, some sort of spiritual restoration happens, some sort of fix happens. You and I are not able to live the lives we were created to live. Just, I, I don't care who you are or what your life is like. If you have not been spiritually healed, you will not be able to live as you were created to live. That sounds like I'm insulting you. I'm not, it's just the truth. 
because we've all sinned and separated ourselves from God. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We're all in the same boat unto ourselves. We all need to be healed. And this is why so many people in the world, frankly, are so miserable and so lost. We all know that we're broken. How many of you know that life is not perfect? Life is not fair. That should be every hand up in here today. We all know that there's brokenness. We all know that things aren't perfect in our lives. But the problem is we start to look for healing in the lesser areas first. Oh, I need to physically feel better. Yeah, you probably do. I need to be made whole financially. Yeah, you might. But your deepest need is spiritual. And it doesn't necessarily do a whole lot of good at the end of the day if you find the healing in the physical or the relational, but you don't get the spiritual healing. It's that important. It's priority number one. So healing is about more than just physical fixing. It's first and foremost the need for spiritual healing and then branching out into all other aspects of our life, which takes us to number two this morning. Jesus is our healer. Who's our healer? Jesus is our healer. So we've identified, we have this need to be spiritually healed. That's our deepest need right there. Something has to happen for us to make us right with God so we can do this with God. And Jesus is what has happened to that end. Jesus says of himself in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me, he says. You see, Jesus came to the earth and he lived a sinless, perfect life that would separate him from the lives that we've lived. Because we're sinners, we're sinful. Jesus is not. Jesus died on a cross to pay for our sins because the wages of sin is death, right? A, a penalty price needs to be paid for sin. Jesus came and sacrificed his life on the cross to pay that debt for us so that we could be healed. So it says in Isaiah 53, by his stripes, we are healed. By his suffering, we can be made whole. By his death, we can have life. Jesus is the key for all of this. So I guess the sidebar question to that is, don't answer out loud, but have you accepted that? Have you believed that Jesus loves you and died for you so he could save you? You need that. That is the pathway to spiritual healing. That is the pathway to the life that you've been created to live. You need to be made right with God, friends. Now, our need for spiritual healing gets addressed in Jesus. Because here's the cool part. He didn't just die. He rose, right? This isn't news to anybody. Easter's coming up. You remembered, right? Jesus rose from the grave. Since he was sinless, the grave could lay no claim to him. And on the third day, he rose victoriously, triumphantly, mightily, and he overcame all that darkness and sin and death and the powers of hell and the grave. Jesus is greater. How many of you know Jesus is greater today? Good. That's why you're here, I hope. So Jesus is alive. He's ascended into heaven. That's where he is right now, ruling and reigning and, and leading and building his church and interceding for us and guiding us. So he saves us now. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ now, when we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ now, he saves us from our sins and we can be brought like this, close to God like we were always meant to. Is that good news to somebody today or not? Good, very good. Now, now, the need for spiritual healing and wholeness though doesn't stop once you get saved. I mean, I'm not saying we need to get saved again or anything like that, but I'm, I'll ask it actually. As a Christian, if you're a Christian, do you ever have times where you're not as close to God as you could or should be? 
Yeah, the guy that I see in the mirror every day has that for sure. He kind of struggles sometimes. Pray for him. As a Christian, do you go through periods of, I'm kind of plateaued or peaked or I'm just kind of coasting or drifting. I'm kind of disengaged from the Lord. Ever had that in your life before as a Christian? Of course you have. As a Christian, do you ever still sin? Of course you do. Even you lovely people. So our need to be cleansed and healed doesn't go away because we need to be continually renewed. We need to be continually healed. Again, not to the degree of you need to be saved again. No, but we're to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, aren't we? That means that ongoing, we're, we're just trusting the Lord with our sin. We're confessing it. We're giving it to him. And he does something in us that prunes some stuff away so we can keep on bearing fruit. So our need for healing doesn't go away 100%. We still need it. It will go away one day, by the way. When we're with Jesus, after this life is over, we won't need that anymore. There'll be no more sin. That'll be pretty cool, right? It's gonna be a good day. I digress. So Jesus is our healer in that way. Here's the really cool thing, though. It's not that Jesus is only effectual to bring healing spiritually and then he's not good for anything else. Jesus actually has the authority to bring healing into other areas of our lives as well because he's Lord over all of life, not just over part of it. It says in John 3.35, we read it a few weeks ago, that all things, how many things? All things have been given into his hand. That's authority language. Matthew 28, all authority, Jesus says, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That means that he is authorized, he is licensed, he is able to bring healing and do all kinds of other stuff. And then you couple that with the fact that, oh, he loves us and he's good to us and faithful to us and he knows our needs, Matthew chapter six, it starts to kind of look pretty good for us as believers, right? So what this really is pointing to is we have a choice to make. We can look for healing in all kinds of different places in life. I don't know what you're struggling with, what you need healing in. There's many places you can look. Maybe you can buy a Q-ray, just saying, right? Ah, You can look to superstition. You can look to the ways of the world. You can look to, I'll just try harder, work more hours, pull myself up by the bootstraps. You can look to weird, like a new age spirituality. Or, friends, you can look to the one who's already proven himself to you. Jesus, your healer, the one who has saved you and healed your deepest, darkest need, your sin problem. The one who, I guarantee you, sitting in here, Jesus has brought healing into other areas of our lives as well. Maybe it was an instant thing, like a miracle. He just dropped on you, boom. Maybe it was something that was indirect, like through the hand of a surgeon, or he gave you the means to get a, another job that pays more to address your finances. That's still from Jesus. That's still from God, because every good and perfect gift comes from above. You didn't just conjure it up on your own. Maybe that healing was instantaneous. Maybe it took days, weeks, months, years to come about. Maybe it's still in the works. But Jesus has proven himself to us with regard to healing. There's no question. I guarantee that's part of your testimony, Christians. Guarantee. So we have a choice to make. Who are we going to trust for our healing? That's the right answer, friends. Jesus because he's our healer. That brings us to the third thing about healing. It's this. This is where it gets a little touchier. Sometimes God heals. Sometimes he doesn't. We can play this game with ourselves, right? Of, I've been praying for healing. I haven't seen it yet. That must mean God's mad at me, or I'm, I don't have enough faith, or something's wrong. And you start kind of 
you pop open the hood of your life and you start messing around with things you don't really need to mess around with and there must be something wrong with me and we can get discouraged and despair and, and now I don't trust God anymore. It's a dark road we can go down when we perceive that we haven't gotten the healing that we need. And I get this is like a very real thing. Maybe some of you guys are in that boat right now this morning. Some, some need in your life. You've been praying and asking and longing for healing and you haven't seen it yet. I definitely don't want to just give a pat answer to that. Like, they're there. That's not that helpful. But the best thing that I can say when I look at the counsel of God's word to this end is found in Isaiah chapter 55. God says in Isaiah 55, 8, I think, he says, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Matter of fact, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways and my thoughts higher than yours. You know what that means? We can't get onto the same wavelength as God. We don't think quite the same way as God. We don't see the whole picture, but he does. So sometimes you and I are looking for healing, but we only see like this. But God actually has a plan in that. God actually has a purpose in that pain. You wanna know something? God will never waste any of your pain. We got great promises in the scriptures like how God says he's gonna cause everything to work for our good, all things to work together for our good for those of us who love him, even the bad things in your life. And I'm not saying I'm glad you're dealing with that thing or suffering from that thing, but I'm saying God might have a purpose in that that you can't see. The question is not necessarily, God, why haven't you healed me? And I mean, keep asking him for sure. But the question is not, why haven't you healed me? The question is, will I have faith? Faith and healing get connected wrongly all the time. Again, we've seen the horrors. You just have enough faith and you'll be healed. Just claim it. And then when you don't get the healing, oh, there's something wrong with me. I don't have enough faith. I'm weak. I'm this, I'm that. That's very destructive and damaging. That isn't real faith. You know what real faith is? It's trusting in God no matter what. It's trusting in God even when you don't see the healing. It's trusting the promises of God even though you're in pain. That is what true faith is. That is what God is calling us to do. If you're not seeing, well, even if you are, whether or not you're seeing the healing you're praying for and asking for in your life, God is calling you to trust him in it because he's with you in it. You know, God never leaves you or forsakes you. God never forgets about you. God never says, oh, when did that happen? I didn't notice. God is for you. God loves you. You gotta hold on to those promises, my friends, even and especially when we're in the dark night of the soul, when the healing seems like it's not coming feel like we could talk about healing all the rest of the day here. Ultimately, though, this first section of John 5, yeah, this is just the first half of the sermon. This healing stuff in John 5, this is calling us back to something. This is pointing us to something, to someone, to the source. We can look for healing. We can look for fixing all kinds of places, or we can choose to trust Jesus in our matters of healing. The choice is entirely yours. Next thing we'll do then, we'll flip the script a little bit. We're going to talk about hope now. Somebody say hope again. I haven't heard from you for a while. Hope, hope with gusto even. Very good. So I want to just read the last kind of half of this scripture from verse, the end of verse 9 to verse 18, and then we'll talk about it. It says, now that day was the Sabbath. Sidebar, anytime you see that sentence in the scriptures, you know there's like going to be a rumble or something. Something's coming up. That day was the Sabbath. So the Jews, that'd be the Jewish leaders, said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath 
and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, well, the man who healed me, that man is the one who said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Let's just pause there one second. If you read that a certain way, it kind of almost looks like Jesus is saying, watch out or karma's gonna get you. Like you were sick before because you had sinned in some way. Make sure you don't do it again or I'm gonna whack you again. Can we just establish that's not a thing? That's not a thing. Karma is not something that's from God. We reject that as Christians. There are definitely times, I've lived this, where you do something dumb or sinful or stupid and you gotta pay the consequences. That's a thing. But we need to be careful not to just quickly draw this line of, oh, if I did this, I gotta cover my head because like the bolt of lightning's now gonna come down. That's not how God works. Come on now. What Jesus is really saying here is, you know, there are worse things than being physically infirmed. There are worse things than being an invalid or having trouble with your legs or whatever. For instance, like continuing on in sin, unrepentant, uh, unchanging, not being healed spiritually, and then at the end of your life being in that state, you'll be cast out and sentenced and condemned. That's a problem. That's what Jesus is saying. So the man went away, verse 15, and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Sidebarring again. Doesn't that kind of look like the guy ratted him out? Thank you for doing this nice thing for me, Jesus. 911. Right? That may be what happened. We don't really know. I mean, there's a chance this guy was just afraid of the influence and the authority of the religious leaders and he felt obligated to go tell them. It's also possible he was fired up and he wanted them to know who it was. He wanted to testify about him. He, you need to know this Jesus guy. Or maybe he did just rat him out. I don't know. But either way, excuse me, either way, now the religious leaders know who was Jesus. And this, verse 16, was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. You know what persecuting means? It means they were giving him trouble. They were giving him a hard time. They were bothering him. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. It's kind of a large statement in verse 18 there. I don't believe that the word hope is in that text anywhere, but the concept is all through there. Remember we said earlier, hope is that sense of expectation. It's that confidence you have in your life that tomorrow is gonna be better and brighter. I'm gonna have a future. Things are gonna work out because of X, Y, Z being in my life. That's what hope is. Hope is not just some metaphor, some state of mind. It's an act of trusting in Jesus. It's an act of believing. It's an act of putting your faith and confidence in something. Because we all come into periods in life where we realize, wow, life is not that easy. I'm not doing so well. And I need to kind of attach my confidence to something or someone to know that I'm gonna be all right. That's what hope is. And what we see in this section of scripture from verse nine to 18, we see a group of people who are putting their hope somewhere. I'm talking about the Jewish religious leaders here. They are aware, they're a group that is aware of their need 
to be made right with God. We talked about that, right? Our spiritual healing. These guys are aware that they need that. If you read all through the gospels about the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, that was their whole thing. We need to be made right with God. We need to be righteous. But where they got it wrong is that they believed their righteousness, their right standing before God was gonna come through them following the rules. Very, very important that you understand that if you're gonna understand these leaders. They put their hope, their confidence, they threw all their eggs into the basket of we're gonna be okay with God because we're gonna follow the rules really strictly. That's what religion is, by the way. That's what religious people do. It's all about me, my works, my performance. We call that works righteousness. What, why not? Say works righteousness. That by the things that you do, the works of your life, you're gonna be made right with God. Thank you, whoever did that. Once again, this sermon is over. Thank you. Yes, there are many problems with a works righteousness kind of a lens that you look through. And we can see all kinds of them in this text. If you go back one slide, if you don't mind, in verse nine, it says that these things happened on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was something that originated at the very beginning of the scriptures, probably page one of your Bible. God created the heavens and the earth in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. The Sabbath is a day of rest. It, co it comes from the very beginning of it all. And God passed that on to his people Israel. Part of their flow and routine of life is you take the day, the Sabbath day, the holy day, and you rest, you don't work. The religious guys were all over this, which is kind of ironic because... They viewed the Sabbath, which was a day where you didn't work, they viewed their observance of the Sabbath as a work. If we can observe the Sabbath hard enough, that'll make us right with God, or that'll be part of the, the, the peace that makes us right with God. That's a problem, because the Sabbath is supposed to point and draw people and invite people into God. It's not supposed to be a day which gives you an occasion to just feel smug and self-righteous. They missed the point altogether. And they're twisted. You look at verse 10, they call this guy that had been healed, they call him right to the carpet. It is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. That was considered a work, right? Do you see what they miss in verse 10? They miss the miracle. This guy had been an invalid for 38 stinking years and he's now walking around and all they can see is you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. Give me a break. Seriously. But that's where their minds are. They're so bent on the rules. They miss what God is doing all around them. The guy in verse 11 says, look, I'm confused. The guy that healed me told me to get up and walk. I figured I should listen to him. Now, it's not that Jesus was encouraging people to break the rules. It's that these guys had the rules completely mixed up. These guys didn't understand the rules at all. Because again, the Sabbath day was a day of refreshing and a day of peace and a day of wholeness. Jesus did all of that for this guy, made him whole. But they miss it. They're so bent. Their hope is so focused on their own righteousness. So much so to the degree, if you go to the next slide, verse 16 says, that is why they were persecuting Jesus because he was breaking the rules on the Sabbath. I just find that very interesting because their pursuit in their mind, we need to be right with God, righteous before God. It actually causes their behavior to be super unrighteous. 
Instead of becoming more like the Lord, now all of a sudden they're acting in wickedness and in hatred and in violence. They're persecuting somebody. Somebody show me a verse in the New Testament that says we're supposed to go out and persecute people. You know what I'm saying? No. But they miss it. They miss it altogether. So much so that in verse 18, they actually want to kill him. This is how deep their depravity is. This is how wicked they are. This is how much they've missed the mark. That they actually want to kill Jesus, the Son of God, who's doing all this good and all these miracles. They want to eliminate him because of their pursuit of their own righteousness. It is deep, friends. It's bad. So not only is that a reminder for us to check ourselves, is there a religious spirit in me? It's a reminder, hey, these guys were hoping in the wrong thing. These guys, their hope was in vain. It was in the complete wrong place. Because I want to tell you something about works righteousness. Just throw this in as a freebie. You and I will never be made righteous with God by the things that we do, ever. We are only made righteous with God by the things that Jesus Christ has done for us. So this is just all wrong. These guys have missed it completely. Before we get feeling smug, when we put our hope in other areas too, that's equally not going to work. People all over the place are putting their hope in their money. It's my security net. I'm good. They're putting their hope in their education. They're putting their hope in their job title. They're putting their hope in their health. They're putting their hope in the government doing the right thing. That should have made you laugh. Thank you. By the way, not anti-government, just telling you, but it's there. We all understand. Anyway, putting our hope in any of these places Maybe that sounds familiar to you. That's not going to work. What confidence do you have in those things? What kind of a track record do these things have? If you lean into your money, guess what? I'm not trying to depress you. You can lose your money. And then what? Where's your hope then? What about you? You, you can lose your health. That's gone. Now what's my hope in? You can lose that job title. The government may or may not do the right thing. Then where is your hope? You need to hope in something that you can lean on and count on and know that it's not going to buckle when you lean on it. The things of the world will never satisfy. But then there's the alternative. There's Jesus Christ. You and I are invited to put our hope in Jesus Christ because he can handle the weight. He's not going to buckle or break or fall when we lean on him. He is our hope. As Christians, that needs to be the battle drum that we march along with. Jesus is our hope. In fact, let's say it together. Jesus is our hope. He made us. He loves us. He is for us. He died for us. He rose for us. We believe as Christians that as he lives, so also will we live. That is our hope. He saved us through faith. He reconciled us to God. He's forgiven us of our sins. He's given us of his spirit. He is interceding for us, ruling and reigning on a throne. He is coming again. Friends, he is our hope. He alone is our hope. And furthermore, let's just keep rolling on it. We've seen his power in our lives. We've seen his faithfulness in our lives. We've seen that he's actually never let us down once. He's provided for every single need we have. You're still here. You're still breathing. You're still clothed. Just saying. If you haven't had your coffee yet, he's provided it upstairs in a few minutes. Ah, oh boy is right. Look, we've, you've, you've seen his grace wash over you. You've sensed his presence in your life, Christian. We put our hope in him for that. He has given us his promises. There's even one here. 
He says, I am working. Jesus is at work in the world. Jesus is at work in your life. He has not forgotten about you or abandoned you. He's on the move, friends. Hold on to that. He is, he is not against us, but for us. He will never leave us or forsake us. Even if life is bad, when you belong to Jesus, you know that you belong to someone who is good. Even on the darkest night of the soul, there is still light. He is the light of the world. Even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he is still with us. Where is your hope today? It's gotta be in Jesus. He is our hope. Friends, this whole thing is calling us. Don't put your confidence in the flesh. Don't put your confidence in the things of the world. Don't put your confidence in yourself. Put it where it rightfully belongs, in Jesus Christ. He is our hope, and hope does not put us to shame. If you hope in Jesus, you don't have to sink in despair. You don't have to be discouraged. You can rise up. You can stand up. You can look up. You can live this life that he's given you to live, if you will trust him, if you will put your confidence in him. Time to wrap up then. Here's what I'll say in closing. If your soul is longing for healing, we've pointed to the source of your healing. His name is Jesus. If you long for hope to pulse through your veins as you go through this track in life, trust in Jesus. He is the source of your hope. The world is gonna let you down time after time after time after time, but Jesus promises to pick you up and he will hold you in the hollow of his hand and he will take care of you and he will provide for you because he is the source of our healing and our hope. Yes, somebody agree with that. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord.